Welcome to Business Brief, Missouri Business Alert's podcast focused on the news and issues shaping the state. In this episode, we'll talk to an expert about a proposal for more state funding to help keep entertainment venues open. Then we'll look at the positives and risks of monoculture, a technique that has allowed farmers to increase efficiency and put enough food on your table. I'm joined today by my co-host, Ian Laird. How are you doing this week, Ian? Great. Just trying to stay warm and bundle up inside. I'm from Cleveland, so this snowstorm has definitely made me feel like I'm back home. I gotta say, we do not get this type of weather in Seattle, so I'm not built for this. The city shuts down if we even get just two or three inches of snow. Yeah, with all the snow, we will be recording at our apartments today, so we are doing everything we can to stay out of the cold. All right, you ready to get into things, Ian? Yep. First, let's look at this week's headlines. Sticking with the snowstorm, St. Louis Lambert International Airport and Kansas City International Airport had waves of flight cancellations on Wednesday and Thursday. Most Wednesday early morning flights out of Kansas City were canceled. And according to FlightAware, a website that tracks data on flight cancellations and delays, over 70% of flights leaving from St. Louis was canceled Thursday. And the Spire St. Louis pipeline saga is set to continue. Executives of the St. Louis utility said Wednesday that a decision on whether the natural gas pipeline will continue to operate will take another year. Federal judges ruled last year that a need for the line was never adequately demonstrated, but federal regulators granted Spire a temporary extension for operation in December. Now, the pipeline's future depends on a decision next year from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Shifting to rural Missouri, towns could get a boost as the United States Department of Agriculture is giving out $1.4 billion to rural economies to help create wealth in communities through job training, business loans, and technical assistance and updates. The grants and loans will range from housing to providing capital for new small business owners and the expansion of small businesses and family farms. And some Missouri lawmakers are concerned about potential price gouging from nursing agencies amid staffing shortages. House Minority Leader Crystal Quaid, a Democrat from Springfield, wrote a letter to the state attorney general outlining concerns that nursing agencies are exploiting the shortage by offering higher than competitive rates. Since July, Missouri's healthcare system has spent more than $14 million to fill nursing gaps with staffing agencies, nearly $12 million more than the budget originally called for. Starbucks employees' unionization efforts have reached Missouri. Employees at two Kansas City area locations announced Monday that they're filing for unionization cards. The workers joined more than a dozen other locations across the country in announcing their organizing efforts Monday. Now, workers at 54 Starbucks stores have filed union petitions in 19 states, according to Workers United. The chain has opposed unionization efforts, with executives speaking at locations that have attempted to unionize. It's been almost two years since the beginning of the pandemic. Many live performance venues stopped operating initially, but they've been able to return in the last year with the rollback of regulations and the introduction of vaccines. However, many of these venues say they still need additional funding to stay open, right, DC? Yeah, Ian. The federal government established the Shuttered Venue Operators Grant Program late in 2020 to provide aid to businesses that depend on live events. That includes venue operators or promoters, live performing arts organizations, theatrical producers, and museums. The program had $16 billion to distribute, and nearly $230 million has gone to about 230 businesses in Missouri, according to the Small Business Administration. 
but Governor Mike Parson still thinks live venues need more support? Yep. Parson is pushing lawmakers to approve a $20 million grant program to help venues cover for costs like payroll, rent, and mortgage and debt payments. What do industry experts think about Parson's proposal? Well, I got to talk to Kelly O'Neill Wenzel. She is the owner of O'Neill Events and Marketing, a Kansas City-based events and marketing company that produces large-scale festivals, including Boulevardia and the Kansas City Irish Fest. Wenzel is also a member of the Missouri Entertainment Alliance, a coalition of independent venues and promoters that advocate for state funding. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time today. Yeah. Recently, the news came out that Governor Parson is proposing this $20 million grant program for, for live performance venues, concert halls, theaters. How, how big of a dent can this help solve for this problem? Or is this something that we're going to need to keep repeating year after year? I'd like to see it happen first. And I would like to see the parameters around it because I think it, it can certainly help. I mean, I think the states have to step up. And, and, but the states are going to look to federal. I mean, it, it's a trickle down thing. You know, they lost a lot of tax dollars. I mean, by not hosting, I mean, that is money out of the state's pockets as well. So I'm anxious. I think there, you cannot say no to anything. I think right now there should be ongoing support. Has there been a commitment from, from customers to still go back to these concerts? Have there not been as many concerts that have been able to go on? Has, has the bigger problem been maybe we haven't had as big of a jolt back as we've at least returned to somewhat of a return to normal? People are wanting. They want live music. They, we, we strive for connection. So we know that people want it. What most of the venues are dealing with now is Omicron. It's indoors and we recognize that it's very contagious and people are all getting COVID. So it's not even people not being able to go. The performers are getting it. The stagehands are getting it. The venues can't open because they can't get staffing. Um, one of the things we recognized was the expenses of everything going up. Labor's hard to get right now. Fencing, um, temporary structures, all of these things, the costs are rising. And so a lot of people have to weigh, can they afford to even go on? Is there maybe a more specific case that you could maybe go through just in, in your recent experience when you were putting on an event that if, if there's one that comes to mind of dealing with maybe a, a really drastic increase in cost of raw materials, a, a, mm -hmm. a staffing shortage, something that's affected one of the recent events that your company has put on? Week out from the festival, our private security company had to cancel because they couldn't support us. So we had to scramble to try to find labor and security and lots of different companies to get them properly secured. Obviously the enormous impact initially of the pandemic is that on, on live performance venues is that there's that you can't do them. You can't have them, but in, in a way it seems like it's created so many ripple effects that are turning this into a, from a short-term, a, a super devastating short-term impact to a nagging, long, a bunch of nagging long-term yeah. challenges. We all knew this was coming. We knew that labor was going to be the biggest issue because it's not a glamorous job. A lot of it's hard labor and um, people found other things and, or I don't know, they switched careers, but you know, you've got a lighting technician that's been doing it for years. You want that lighting technician to, to be back. Um, and, and those are the type of support that everybody needs. And 
Yeah, it's a trickle down and it, it, it will be. It's like anything, the supply chain, it's going to be a trickle down. Comparing it to the restaurant industry, we're going to lose restaurants. We, we knew that mm-hmm. during the pandemic, we've already lost restaurants, but there will always be a lot of restaurants. Whereas an industry like live performance venues, there, there aren't that many venues. So how, how scary is it in terms of the quantity of how, how many do you think you can even afford to lose in the, in the KC area before you really start to see, oh, well, those suppliers of staging, that's like a, a company that maybe happens to like, that's their specialty. They supply uh, wood for staging and they're going to collapse. I don't know the number. But I can tell you from the ecosystem of music and live performances that Missouri needs to stay up. Um, This ecosystem works around the country, not just Kansas City, right? So we are part of a touring system. And with live venues, they'd support live. So when a neighboring state or city has those funds and can keep them, then they are going to jump over us. And we can't afford that. And that's what's really going to be the tall tale is how how can we, we have the size of venues, you know, not all, you know, you have to have the amphitheaters, you have to have the indoor, you have to have the small, you have to have the medium. We have to have all of those. So when those tours come through, we can support them. Um, And if you only have a few doing it, then your entertainers have few options and they skip over Kansas City or St. Louis or some of the smaller rural communities. And that's that's not going to be good for anybody. Are we going to need to see pretty steady streams of funding from state and city entities to keep these places open? I think the rising costs are what we all have to deal with and the loss of talent. To be quite frankly, a lot of people switched roles. They didn't wait around. So what we're going to be facing now is how do we make sure we can put on what we want to put on in the quality we want to put it on. And so, um, yeah, is funding that, is it, is it incentives for people coming back to the industry? I think there's, I don't have the answer and I don't always think that the a paycheck is the answer. I think it's, it's collective um, communication and working together to find the proper solutions so that we we feel good about going forward. So I don't know how dire it is. In my industry, I think a lot of people I talk to were crazy deep busy because we don't have the labor and so we're all working harder. Um, So we are working. Um, It's just a matter of how sustainable is it? Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, I, I, I really do appreciate it. All right, thanks so much. For our next story, you looked at Missouri agriculture and a type of farming that has become synonymous with modern agriculture, right Ian? Yeah, I was able to talk to a few plant science and crop experts about the term monoculture. Kept hearing it tossed around by people critical of modern agriculture and wanted to know what it means and what exactly it does for Missouri. Interesting. What were you able to find when you dug into this? I found that it gets really complicated really quickly and that there are a lot of public misconceptions about how easy it might be to find solutions to some of the main critiques of our modern farming practices. I guess to start, can you explain what relevance this has now for Missouri's economy and businesses, Ian? Yeah, I think as most people know, Missouri is heavily reliant on agriculture. In 2021, agriculture and related industries contributed about $30 billion in value added for the state and accounted for about 400,000 jobs, according to the Missouri Department of Agriculture. We're talking about a really vital industry for the state, 
When you look at what we've been experiencing for the past two years, we've seen how disruptive a pandemic among humans is. Right. So you wondered about plants' vulnerability to pandemic. Exactly. One of the big fears being publicized with monocultures is this idea that they're more prone to diseases. So I thought it would be interesting to look into what a potential pandemic among crops could look like for the state. I see. And before we go any further, we should establish what exactly is a monoculture. It's hard to really get anywhere discussing this without answering that simple question. The problem is the answer is anything but simple. I think it's best if I leave this to experts on the subject matter. So here are their answers to that. I mean, all of modern agriculture, including organic agriculture, is monoculture. A farmer may be growing, you know, four or five different genotypes of corn on their farm for various reasons. But any given field, he doesn't plant two genotypes in the same field. Uh, to me, a monoculture is uh, when you plant a whole field of genetically identical individuals. Um, so um, the immune system in plants is, is varied, um, can vary from individual to individual in a plant. In agriculture, that wouldn't be the case. They would all be the same. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. I think that that term is, has been tossed around a lot and it's kind of a little bit subjective. But in, in basic form, the way I understand it, the way I define it is uh, a vast amount of area in a single growing season, in a single year, or producing a single crop, so a, a common crop. That was, in order, Gary Stacy, a professor of plant sciences at the University of Missouri, Walter Gassman, another professor at MU and the director of the Bond Life Sciences Center, and Justin Calhoun, a professor for MU Extension and an expert in soil and crop systems. Okay, so there's a bit of nuance to each of those answers, but there seems to be a connecting thread. Yes, essentially monoculture refers to any agricultural field that contains one genotype of a crop, and a genotype is the making of all of a living organism's genetic material that determines its traits. Now that we have kind of defined what monoculture is, why is it important? Stacy mentioned virtually all modern agriculture is monoculture. The other reason it's important was highlighted later in my conversation with Gassman. We have to realize that modern agriculture is extremely successful. I mean, the, the amount of yield that we get per acre nowadays is just incredible um, compared to a few decades ago. It sounds like monoculture generally allows us to be more efficient with growing crops. Yeah. Without this style of farming, it would likely be very difficult to produce enough food for everyone. Calhoun, the soil and crop systems expert, says another benefit of monoculture farming is that it is a better fit economically for many farmers. So much of our system is set up on an annual renewal basis. And what I mean by that is, is as, you know, as a farmer, am really worried about this year me making my money for this year so that I can pay off my debt from this year and then come back and be in business again for next year. You've mentioned a lot of positive things that come from this style of farming. Are there any drawbacks? This is where it gets a little bit more complicated and hazy. So one of the primary concerns with any sort of farming is the degradation of soil quality and depletion of soil nutrients. This is further exacerbated by growing just one crop. A simplified explanation of why this happens is that each crop will draw certain nutrients from the soil and return other nutrients to the soil. So the continued use of the same crop will lead to some nutrients being completely extracted from the soil. For the most part, though, this has been mitigated by the adoption of practices like crop rotation, which involves planting different crops in different fields from year to year in order to allow those nutrients to replenish. Rotation also can alleviate some disease pressures by not allowing that disease incidence to build up year over year. 
Disease itself is one of the biggest concerns with monoculture, right? Yeah, if you think about it, having an entire field with the same genetic traits means they would all have the same genetic susceptibility to certain pests or diseases. So having a homogenous field does mean an entire field could be lost to disease. Now, the actual likelihood of this happening on a large scale is pretty limited. Here's Calhoun on the reasons a statewide crop failure is unlikely. In my mind, really, the only thing I can think of is a blight, a corn blight event that we had in the 1970s. Um, and since then, we have come so far in our breeding programs and our genetic um in our genetic engineering that, that a lot of our varieties are more tolerant to, to environments like that. Um, I'm, I'm not going to say never. There's always things that happen. But if we look at the nature of some of these occurrences, they, they tend to be um, more geographically sporadic. Um, not very many pandemics have wide sweeping ranges that occur across all of our environments that are encompassed in the state or within a growing region. And here's Stacy, the MU Plant Sciences professor, talking a bit about how the U.S. is built to try and manage the spread of most pathogens. The U.S. categorizes some uh, pathogens as what's called priority pathogens. And what that means is that you are, you are unable, as a scientist, I'm unable to get access to those pathogens except without a specific permit. That's one way the government limits the ability of these kinds of pathogens to spread. Although eventually, as, as in the case of soybean Asian rust, eventually they do spread, it just slows them down. At the end of that, he mentioned something called soybean rust. What is that? Yeah, so that was a disease that many farmers in the Midwest were worried about a couple decades ago. Soybeans are Missouri's top crop with an annual on-farm value of around 2.5 billion. And the state has the seventh highest production in the country. So any disease that threatened soybean crops would have a drastic effect on the state. Now, the disease was likely blown into the U.S. from South America by a hurricane in 2004, and immediately people started looking for solutions. As Walter Gassman from the Bond Center explains, though, the worry ended up being short-lived. As it turned out, it didn't overwinter well, so it never became that big problem. But there was a lot of research going on finding new natural resistance to this uh, fungal pathogen. The other reason diseases are less of a concern than some people think is because of the ability we have to genetically engineer plants to have some level of resistance against certain diseases. Although Gassman pointed out how genetic engineering does often come with a yield penalty or a reduction on the return for a crop. So it's important to only engineer resistance to diseases that are actual threats so as to not affect yield too much. Okay, it sounds like a widespread disease ruining an entire harvest is unlikely. But say a disease were to hit, what would that look like economically? I think the easiest thing to understand is that food prices would likely go up. With lower yields and less animal feed being produced, that's a fairly natural conclusion to come to. Another fairly direct impact would be the mounting debt that many farmers would face. Lower yields mean less financial return for farmers, which in turn means an inability to pay off loans they took on earlier in the crop cycle. Those are the more visible costs. What are some of the costs we could see down the line? Well, the other thing we could see is businesses adjacent to agricultural production experiencing heavy losses. Stacy used the example of orange juice factories in Florida and the disease known as citrus greening. If I have a factory for orange juice, I need to have, let's say I need to have 50 million tons of oranges every year. If I have 49 tons, I can't, I can't make any money. 
So when production drops below 40, 49, 50 tons, I close my orange juice factory. And if I close my orange juice factory, then maybe all those farmers have lots of oranges, but they got nowhere to sell them. And so you reach a tipping point where the industry just go, you know. So what does the future look like in regards to monoculture farming? Well, again, I think it is important to note that the advantages of this type of farming do pretty heavily outweigh the disadvantages. There's also constant research to try to find practices that are more sustainable and promote higher yields without having some of the negative environmental effects that monoculture can have. But at the moment, given environmental and economic factors, the people I talk to seem to agree that there isn't much reason to move away from this practice. Before we end things, we will leave you with our words of the week. What's your word for this week, DC? My word this week is snowplow. What made you pick that? Well, snowplows are in the middle of a debate about the use of the state road fund. Last year, the fund grew significantly for the Missouri Department of Transportation following a flow of federal pandemic funds and a two and a half cent per gallon gas tax increase. Well, what's the problem? The department wants to use the funds to increase pay and staffing. The department has high turnover rates and has short 400 snowplow operators while it dealt with the winter storm this week. So they think increasing pay can help attract more state workers like snowplow drivers. And who's on the other side of the debate? Some Missouri lawmakers are criticizing the request because they think the increased funding should go directly to boosting Missouri's roads and bridges, which was the main reason for the new gas tax last year. Yeah, this is definitely not the best timing for a snowplow driver shortage. Definitely not. Okay, what's your word? My word this week is bills, more specifically utility bills. What's going on with Missouri utility bills? Some Ameren customers saw their energy bills soar this week as temperatures dropped. In October, state regulators approved a temporary rate hike to help the St. Louis utility recover from losses during extreme cold and high demand for gas last February. How much is the rate increase? The Public Services Commission approved a 67% increase for Ameren natural gas. The increase will be spread out over 12 to 36 months to lessen its impact, but with some customers relying heavily on natural gas to heat their homes during the winter months, the increase has been noticeable. And before we leave you to the rest of your day, let's end with our closing thought. This week's closing thought offers some hope for the live entertainment industry. Like we've talked about, the industry has dealt with many labor and material challenges. But Kelly O'Neill Wenzel says the industry will survive. You also are dealing with a very creative, creative group of people. Um, they are, are in, in the industry of live events. And so we're always we're always facing crisis, whether it's weather related, um, sick related, public safety related. I mean, all of these things we've kind of been bouncing around because it's a very risk, risky industry. You saw a lot of that type of pivoting, which I'm so sick of the word, but you really did begin to see how that translated um, the industry and, and most just saved, you know, just took a step back and waited it out. All right, that wraps things up for this episode. Thank you to the M33 Project for providing the music for this episode. For my co-host, Ian Laird, assistant producers Kaylee Anagita and Christian McDonald, and editors Kaylee Daruk, Jack Knowlton, James Marshall, and Wicker Perlis, I'm DC Benincasa. This has been Business Brief. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.